understanding that weird book of Revelation, and this is part 25, and we're continuing with what we started last Sunday night, what you need to know about the second coming. Uh, next week is June 3rd, am I right? Yeah, so next Sunday night is worship night. Don't forget about worship night. This place will be jammed. Come early, bring someone with you, take some of those flyers that are out on the desks. That's always a huge event in our church. So we won't be doing uh, next Sunday night study. Can you imagine all those people come and I'll say, you know what, we're just going to study the book of Revelation together. What you need to know about the second coming. I had four thoughts. We did two last week. Um, the f- Revelation 19, the first six verses where you have uh, the saints around the throne and those martyred souls who were persecuted, shouting glory because of God's triumph. There's this prophetic picture, the coming of Jesus and the triumph over Babylon and all those who, who uh, pulled people away from the gospel of Christ, the followers of what we used to call just worldliness. It's not a bad term. It just doesn't get used as much anymore. And so you have the saints when they see when they see the coming of Jesus and the vanquishing of their enemies. We sang in that song, um, oh, triumph, your triumph over sin and grave, I, I think, something like that. And that's true. The book of Revelation doesn't just celebrate those theological triumphs over death, sin and the grave it it actually celebrates in a way we don't feel as comfortable with God's triumph over his enemies those who oppose him so it's not just death that he defeats not just the grave that he defeats he defeats those who oppose him and you get this picture of this at the second coming we'll we'll read snippets of it it's it's uh it's quite uh, by our standards today quite gruesome in detail and then you have these saints around the throne. This is what we studied in the first point last week. And they're, they're celebrating. They're saying, hallelujah. Uh, this is nine, the last part of the first verse. Nineteen, rather, the last part of the first verse. Hallelujah, salvation and glory, power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, Babylon, who corrupted the earth with immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And so we, we, were, we were looking at that because we aren't used to thinking that way. Christians rejoicing over the judgment of God and, and the way we wrapped that up was saying, uh, we can't imagine how when we are fully like Christ and fully transformed into his image and the kingdom of God finally comes uh, tangibly, visibly before us, We will, we will rejoice in and magnify God's justice then the way we admire his tolerance now. And so we aren't aren't ready for that event right now. And that perspective isn't, isn't one that wells up inside us when we see God's judgment. But we aren't fully what we're going to be like when he, when he comes again. So we looked at that and then we finished up uh, last week, looking at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's in 19, 7 through 10. The bride has made herself 
ready. And, and I mentioned them that John doesn't say very much about where it is, when it is. It's just, it's just the marriage supper of the Lamb. But we know that there's this, uh, there's this picture of reunion. There's a picture of celebration, of being united with Jesus, with those who have gone before. So now we're going to continue with two other points from Revelation 19. The text is 19, 1 to 21. We have an interview and stuff, and I don't think I'm going to read that whole text right now at the beginning. I'll read snippets of it as we work our way through it. So if, if that was point number one and two last week, God's judgment over Babylon, and then the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that reunion with the people of God, this would be point number three if we pick up from last week. The second coming of Jesus and the supper of God. And this is not the supper you're thinking of, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a contrast to it. So Revelation 19, let's pick it up at verse 11. John is on the island of Patmos. He gets these visions and he says, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is Jesus. He makes war. This is not a triumph over death. This is a triumph over his enemies, his foes. Twelve. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That, that's, a, that's a strange sentence. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That shouldn't be surprising. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. It's not the kind of war you're thinking of 15 from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god almighty what are the sevens seven seals seven trumpets seven bowls each running right up to the very end the seven bowls are specifically called the the bowls of god's wrath and it's like a wine press, and the one pressing it with his feet is Jesus. That's the picture that you get here, okay? He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Get this. Come. Gather for the great supper of God. What supper is this? To eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Wow. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to, get, to make war against him, against him who was sitting on the horse. That's Jesus. And against his army. So they all come to, to gather to fight. So John 
forces our imaginations to compare this marriage supper of the Lamb, the people of God, the celebration, the joyousness of it, the reunion of it. And he, he back to back in, in visions that go just bang, bang. He sees this, this cataclysmic end time supper. God's kingdom can't come until all God's enemies are defeated. Jesus didn't die just to defeat sin and the grave. At his coming, he will defeat. Remember the, the, those three powers, um, the beast, Antichrist, and the, and the political structures of the end time that increasingly rise up against, not religion in general, but against Christ. Now, John, the apostle John, you read 1 John and he talks about the fact there have always been antichrists all throughout history. There's the spirit of antichrist. He says it's at work in the world, but he says there's still an antichrist coming. So, so more of the same, but, but intensified. The, the power structures, the political structures of the day will find less and less room to accommodate Jesus. And if you don't see that going on, the false prophet and the religious structures of the day. Paul talks in Romans 1, religion has always been invented by people to create a God they can come to on their own terms and not have to come through Christ and the gospel, the offense of the cross. Increasingly, religion will not have room for Jesus. Lots of religion, not much gospel. So the power structures, the religious structures, now Babylon, which is all of the end time structures. Think of Hollywood. Think of, the, think of the, the things that are organized to make sin look inviting and the things of God look restrictive and dull. Anything like that, that's Babylon. So, the end time confrontation is unavoidable. If you believe the resurrection of Jesus, then you have to believe in his second coming. He went somewhere. He's not here. He's coming back. And if you believe that Jesus will come, then he must judge all that is opposed to his reign. And we're told some things. I want to go over quickly about this judgment when Jesus comes. A, so this would be 3A. Jesus comes in fulfillment of divine promise. You see that in verse 11 of 19? Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. I would underline that. He's called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. If you're remembering back, this is not the first time John, in, in his visions, has been introduced to Jesus with that title. In the letters to the seven churches, uh, the church at Laodicea, if you went back to 314, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. There it is again. So what's being highlighted in the coming of Christ is this, is this rock-solid reliability of God to keep his promise, that he would come again that he would judge wickedness, that he would rule in righteousness. So here's John, remember his audience. He's on Patmos. 
the Romans have little use for those following Christ. John is their leader. They kick him off. The church is experiencing all sorts of persecution, intense persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so it would, be, it would be something for this angel to come in the middle of this mess where it looked like, is God in control? What's happening? And in, in the middle of all this, you get this, the one on this horse is called Faithful and True. Faithful and true. So these poor, desolate people feeling the heat of Roman persecution when nothing in their lives looked as if it was working right. Is that you? You go through seasons. There are elderly saints who have waited a long time for Jesus to come back. My dad was sure Jesus was going to come back before he died. I feel the same way. We're still waiting. Long time. That's the reason John's vision comes with this, this majestic returning Christ and this blazoned identity, faithful, true. I'm not lying. I'm not kidding. It's going to happen like this. The second thing, B, we're told in verse 12 of 19, his eyes are a flame of fire. This too, it's a repeat of an earlier vision of Christ in, in 114, where, where John says, he, he describes as these visions open up, he says the hairs of his head were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. So, so graphic uh, picture, granted, but it, it means nothing escapes his notice, something penetrating, his all-knowingness. No one, no one will stand before Christ when he comes with bluff no excuses will stand all the sham of this fallen world will be laid bare there will be no argument there will be no pretense there will be no ignoring Christ did you watch the um, uh, what's your name's wedding to what's his name um and I'm sitting there, and I'm, it's, it's really, uh, no, I did not get up early in the morning. But yes, I sat with my wife, greater love hath no man. And we, and I'm listening to this guy preach. I have nothing against him at all. How do, how do you do, how do you do a whole message and say nothing about Jesus and his death on the cross? And you listen to a choir sing, Stand By Me. They're really good singers. See, you can, this is our world. I said to Rini, and, and she made me just be quiet. I said, said so, so you see what happens? Here's, here's people, they've been living together in Kensington Palace for ages. And now they're in there, this church and the robes, and you got all the music and the altar and you squirt some God over the top of it all. And the idea here, his eyes are a flame of fire. When, when Jesus comes back, the things that just are like frosting and look good on top of the cake, but have no deep commitment to Christ. 
these things are going to be exposed in a way that will shock even church people. C, the third thing, it says, he has a name written that no one knows but himself, verse 12. Those are the hardest words, I think, in the text. And if you read 20 commentaries on Revelation, you'll get at least 15 interpretations. So what I tend to do in a situation like that, I think the simplest idea is that, you know, take, just take your Bible. And there are many uh, names, titles, the Good Shepherd, the True Vine, the Bread of Life, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. There's names given to Christ. But none of them can adequately portray None can accurately portray by themselves the, the, the power, the majesty. What's going to, none of them can portray what's going to uh, stun our senses when we see Jesus coming in all of his power and glory. We'll think, well, there is no name for that. I don't have any words for that. I think that's why Paul just says, God has highly exalted him, you know, Philippians 2, bestowed on him a name that is above every name. That's Paul's way of saying, pick any name you want. It's higher than that. D. Here's something else. This judgment supper of God with all those violent details is initiated by the word of God the word of God administered by Jesus Christ. John makes this point several times. Let me just highlight them for you, okay, without reading too much. In 13, so these are all in chapter 19, verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. See, there it is. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, that sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Uh, 21, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. John is already introduced. Now he's seeing themes repeated. That's the advantage as these visions pile up. John was already introduced to this concept of the sharp sword of the word coming out of the mouth of Jesus. It, it goes right back to chapter 1, verse 16, where he sees, he sees this vision, this place from which all of the other visions are going to come. He, he's, he's kind of almost struck dead as he sees it. And in verse 16, he says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth, speaking of Jesus, came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, unless you're in a circus act, swords aren't usually kept in the mouth. And John isn't talking about a literal steel sword in that sense. He's talking about judgment. In chapter 19 now, when Jesus comes, you see him riding this horse and this, and this his name is the, the word of, the word and the sharp sword of the word coming out of his mouth. He's talking about judgment being administered one day, justly and righteously, according to promise and according to warning, according to the word of God Almighty. 
So in other words, in other words, John is reminded in this vision, graciously reminded in this vision, that this judgment was not random. This is not God taking some kind of a temper fit, finally exploding at the end of the age. This is all the fulfillment of what had been warned about, what had been talked about. It's in the book you carry to church every Sunday. There's nothing new here in what's unfolding. Perhaps, perhaps even more importantly, we're, we're being forced to consider that this judgment, it's easy to look at it and just see the and just see the judgment of it and forget that it's the result of rejecting grace. It's a result of rejecting God's word made flesh. That's why Jesus has that name, the word. Jesus made this point so clearly when he walked this earth. I was reading John 12, 46 to 48. Do you have that in your notes? Let's read it all out loud, okay? You ready? Let's go. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. How much does the word of Christ, how much, how much does the word of Christ, so that record that you have, it's not really all that long, it's, um, it's about there. How much does this record of the word of Christ, his words, and then the rest of the New Testament that explains the meaning of the words of Christ. How, how, much, how much does this count? Well, if you were to look around the world today, it doesn't count all that much. I mean, here, take this group right here. You can't tell looking around this room. There will be people in this room who have spent hours studying the word of Christ this week. There'll be others. I'm not, I'm not judging you. You were busy or whatever happened. There, there's people in this room right here. You didn't spend 10 minutes in your Bible this week. There's no difference, right? Same jobs, same income, both healthy, coming to church. What difference does it make? And then you have the world out there. They, they, don't, they don't spend any time reading this. They ignore it. They brush it aside. They don't even think about it. They laugh at it. They live lives that are absolutely contrary to it. And look at this world. Nobody does a thing. And so then, then you see this vision, and all of a sudden... Oh, all of every single thing in your life, everything that's happened in Ontario in the last hundred years, everything that's happened in Canada in the last thousand years, I know Canada's not, but the world, you know where it's all headed? It's all going to be judged by this book you carry to church. That's how much the word of Christ matters. Every detail of your life is going to be boiled down to not, not what your mutual funds did this week, 
but what this word did in your life this week. And so all of a sudden, you have this manifestation at the end in this vision. Oh, that's how important the word is. That's why we take time every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. You know what we do? We study the word together. It's not because I'm a great teacher. It's because this is a great book. Your life is going to be judged by this book. We need this reminder of heaven's perspective on the word. Okay, last point. I'm almost done. The fourth thing. Two last week, two tonight. So this is the fourth. The beast and the false prophet. Just 19 through 21. And I saw the beast, political structures, power structures, antichrist, and the kings of the earth, okay, political structures, power structures, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with it, the false prophet, religious structures of the day, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So John focuses particular attention at this point. We'll see more in later weeks. But right now he focuses his attention on the protagonists of all that is against Christ and his rule and his word. So, so the beast, Antichrist, the false prophet, Babylon. While all who follow them will suffer, particular attention is first given to this alliance of the beast, the false prophet, the kings of the earth, as they are aligned against Christ. John's already described this alliance in 16, 13, and 14. He says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So there you have these, these powers. Three unclean spirits like frogs. They aren't frogs. It's a vision that he sees. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on that great day of God Almighty. We'll see more of their final punishment in the next, in the next few chapters. I'll tell you, it is a wonderful thing, is it not? In the midst of all that John sees, some easy to explain, some hard to explain, that this rider on the white horse, I am so thankful that the two things I know for sure are he's faithful and true. Get that book out and devour it. It is faithful and true in what it says. I don't say much about other churches. I wouldn't be 10 minutes. I wouldn't stay 10 minutes. I don't care how big a church, how fancy a church, how popular a church. I wouldn't stay 10 minutes in a church that doesn't believe that is just the faithful and true and errant word of God. You got nothing else to stand on, folks. Nothing else. And that we're going to be judged, that word that you have, God graciously says. You know, it's like like when you have an exam coming. When you have an exam coming and the teacher graciously comes and says, here's the answers before. That's the book. That's the book. 
Let's pray together.